When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan are joined by producer Steffi Haynes to introduce the series and our main source book, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. In this episode, Nate, Ryan, and Steffi discuss their personal history with dance music and the introduction of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the connection it makes between DJs and shamans, DJs and conductors, and DJs and musicians. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. And we're kicking off. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're kicking off a special <laughs> series today. This is, we're going to be focused for like 20 episodes on Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the D- Disc Jockey, which is this epic tome by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, two UK DJs and music writers that really rewrote how music history has been written. It was one of the key books that ended rockism as the dominant strain in music history and criticism. And it is what it says it is. It's a brilliant history of the DJ. And I'm going to be joined by my co-host, Ryan Harkness, as well as a special sometimes co-host, Steph Haynes, Steffi Haynes, uh, who's my producer, and is going to be talking on the show because she danced to a lot of this stuff back when I was your classic punk rock, hip-hop listening white boy who went to the clubs to try to score drugs and meet girls. But um, that was, <laughs> I didn't really realize it was music at the time. So all this stuff has been massively educational for me. So welcome guys. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah, for sure. It's a treat. So this book was written in 1999. Up to that point, there had been some magazine writing about DJ-driven music. I mean, obviously, there have been articles about disco. There have been some books about disco, but nothing that really comprehensively looked at the DJ as a DJ and uh, their overall impact in music. So it's it's this massive landmark. Obviously, if I could, no offense to y'all, if I could get Brewster and Broughton here for 20-something episodes to do this book justice, I would love to do that. But I was lucky to get Ed Ward for that kind of deep dive in the history of early rock and roll. And so... Uh, I'm going to try to get Brewster and Broughton on here, but that's pretty much it. I've kind of outlined my history with this stuff. I mean, I was lucky in time in that I was 
a late teenager, early 20s, in the late 80s, early 90s. So even without trying, I came across early house and techno in Dallas, a lot of trash disc, what we call trash disco at the time, but now I recognize it was probably high energy or garage music, as it's known now, um, in Austin. And uh, in the later 90s, uh, slurked along to some raves uh, with some girls I was chasing around at the time that I shouldn't have been. Um, and so I inadvertently heard a lot of this stuff. Plus, when it started making albums, you know, the Chemical Brothers and and Fatboy Slim and people like that uh, uh, started putting it into album form. Then 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 it was closer to rock that I could digest. How about we tell y'all's history with this music? Ryan, you go first. Okay. Uh, well. I started out basically getting an internet connection and finding uh, various uh, websites, which were just basically IP addresses at the time, not even like a, you know, www.musicdownload.com or something like that. Just a weird IP address with a bunch of MP3s sitting up there, download it and, and hear my first taste of Psytrance and happy hardcore. And that was, that was really mind blowing for somebody who lives in uh backwoods quebec and only basically had an am radio station for 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 english music so it it completely blew my mind got into the rave scene in 1996 started throwing raves in 1999 djing up until about well still up till now although i have gone from from being an underground rave dj to now being a uh, basically uh, top 40s dj at a gay bar uh, back when gay bars and bars in general were allowed to be open before covid shut everything down and uh, that's basically it. I've had about 10 years of, uh, of throwing underground raves uh, uh, behind me. Uh, that was in bowling alleys and warehouses and a whole bunch of places that just the cops would, would shut down. Uh, just looking at it, just looking at it on its, on its face, completely illegal venues to hold these parties. We would just go in there and do it. And uh, I felt like it was the, uh, the golden age of rave that I got to enjoy. Everything now is a little bit commercial for me. And I'm sure that uh, cynicism will, will, might come through uh, in this series a little bit. So I apologize to all, all the new heads and stuff like that. But uh, that's kind of my, my era and my expertise, which is really about, I'd say, like 20% of this book. The, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life is uh, really, really complete. It goes across so many different genres. And, uh, I mean, it even starts out just, just hitting, like, the radio jockeys from, uh, you know, like the 1920s onwards when radio was just really picking up. So it's it's very complete and i've been doing a lot of research uh to try and get myself prepared for some of these lesser known areas of mine but uh, that's my background and basically where i'm going to be taking things from awesome well, and steffi tell my, us about your history with this music my history with this music is nowhere near as expansive as ryan's he was throwing the raves and i was attending them <laughs> but i started much earlier than Ryan did because I'm a little bit older than Ryan. Uh, the late 80s, I was still a teen. Even in, uh, I didn't turn 20 until, you know, the beginning of the 90s. But the point I'm making is that uh, like everybody else in Brooklyn and in Myrtle Beach, because I spent a lot of time in Myrtle Beach with my grandparents, um, everybody had a, a fake ID. From the time I was 15, I was clubbing in adult clubs and going to adult parties and hanging out and drinking and having a great time, just like everybody else did in that era. You can't really do that safely these days, but uh, people do it anyways. I loved the the raves a lot more than the clubs 
it was just wilder and better. The DJ, the way they describe the DJ in this book is very, very accurate. He is the centerpiece. He is the master of ceremonies. And I tell you what, chicks love a good DJ. I bet Ryan, every time he had a successful party, never went home alone. And I like that you mentioned the gay bars too, because gay bars were a mecca for good DJs and good music too. And I partied in a lot of those too. So basically I was the party girl. Cool. An essential role. So let's, let's dive into the book. So in this, this episode, we're going to talk about the introduction, which most books you wouldn't devote a whole chapter to the introduction, but I think it's important with this one because uh, they're making a pretty big argument. And I th- I'd say they've won the day, at least as far as, you know, 20 years later, most people agree that they were right, that this is a music that should have been documented. This is a music that should have been sc- studied, that DJs uh, were worthy of respect as creators, as performers, as artists uh, in a way that they had not been up to the, the point. I mean, not that these were the first people to acknowledge DJs, but when you put something into a big fat fucking tome it adds a little heft and respect to it with people like me who learn primarily through reading you know i'm somebody who's spent decades trying to play guitar played in bands etc cetera, etc cetera, but fundamentally i had to read about music to understand it and the same thing happened once i started reading this stuff and understood how dj worked how dj was different than record production how the two combined and and as I studied, you know, for this project, as I've been studying things like 20s big bands or 20s jazz bands and 30s big bands and and the early days of radio and the early days of party DJs, I realized, you know, there's there's a big thread and that they lay out the, the arguments really coherently. Like, um, first off, they they point out that one of the reasons that DJs have been undervalued by critics is that it's Eurocentrism. I mean, our copyright laws are written so that they only honor lyrics, harmony, which means the chords of a song, and melody. That's the only three aspects of a song that you can copyright. You cannot copyright rhythm. You generally can't copyright a bass line, um, or you can get away with stealing a bass line uh, easily and song after song. And that comes because of the European musical tradition, which I think – you could argue that this music is fundamentally still based out of the Western musical system. I mean, it, it gets away from the song format, but, and it gets away from, I don't know, maybe you could argue that EDM is a break with Western musicology, but, but rock music, even R&B or soul or funk, I would argue are pretty heavily dominated by the Western European tradition. Cause it's got harmony. It's got lyrics generally in English, et cetera, et cetera. But these new elements and new cultures came into the music and, and the legal systems and intellectual systems we had just weren't ready for it. So, And another thing that they point out is early on, right away, is that it's important for modern day EDM fans, electronic dance music fans, to recognize that the style is most directly based on African-American forms, Chicago house music and Detroit techno music from the 80s. And that's something I was oblivious to at the time, even when I was dancing to this music. It... At the time, you know, I was in a high school kid from the Texas Panhandle, went to Dallas for a weekend to look at the colleges there, got to take Legal X, 
um, right before it was banned and went to a club that I found out later, thanks to Bill's records in Dallas, was pumping some of the hippest house and techno music on the planet at the time. But it didn't register to me as something that was made by individuals. I did not realize this was a bunch of black teenagers in their apartments using computers and synths and samplers and drum machines and turntables to make records. I thought this was some kind of big money corporate thing. So, you know, that was usually educational to me. Did you guys know about the the Chicago and Detroit roots of this stuff at all? Frankie Knuckles. Yeah, absolutely. Frankie Knuckles, the great Chicago house DJ that started it all. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm pretty big into, uh, you know, recognizing Detroit and Chicago as the birthplaces of of dance music. Uh, It's definitely something that that I feel like it gets talked about enough. But I think that the general attitude uh, coming towards the average, say, white uh, partier or even like maybe uh, European people in the scene is kind of an attitude that that's somewhat of a, of a, so what is, is kind of what they say. So what uh, it's not the, the attitude seems to be, uh, I suppose to rock where there was a lot of filching and stealing and, uh, erasure going on. Uh, I think that, uh, electronic music there, there's an idea and, and there's definitely a debate to be had about whether or not this is, this is just like, uh, an idea that's being perpetuated that isn't actually true that that black and white people were able to work together to evolve the sound together and it wasn't so much of a situation in rock where you had uh rock bands stealing uh black style and basically pushing while at the same time denying access to the market to those same artists uh in the electronic scene it always seemed at the very least like the producers were almost invisible to the point where color didn't really come into the picture as much yeah, so and it was I, never as big of a it was never as big of a of a focal point at first. And uh, I kind of would like to get to a point where we're we acknowledge it more and we look back at, at kind of what was going on in Detroit more because it's uh, just as somebody who's been doing a lot of listening to uh, all of those all of those pioneers uh, for research for the show. It's it's amazing stuff. And it's uh, really interesting to see where it really came from, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would want to point out that. You know, as we've talked endlessly in the show, there's more nuance to the whole rock, white rock musicians stole black music thing. I mean, people like Pat Boone definitely were appropriating and erasing, but people like Elvis or the Rolling Stones were frequently supporting black musicians, you know, literally financially or, you know, advocating for them uh, the way the Rolling Stones. I mean, the Rolling Stones got Howlin' Wolf on Shindig uh, on ABC, but that's that's kind of a side point. I just wanted to clarify that. And so let's start um, with our first song sample. And this is uh, Phyllis Dillon, Picture on the Wall from Jamaica, 1973. Phyllis Dillon, a picture on the wall from 1973, recorded in Jamaica, and that was Duke Reed's label. This is a sound system. And before we get into Jamaica, which Jamaica's got an early chapter in the book, I want to talk about, kind of give a preview of, of some of the topics that the book's going to be hitting. And, and it starts right out with the history of the DJ uh, in two parts. It, it 
bifurcates the DJ, the radio DJ and the club DJ as separate things. And radio DJ started as early as 1906, the first time we had a radio signal and somebody was talking over the radio and playing records or wax cylinders at the time over the radio. And then club DJ, they distill, they, they identify Jimmy Savile uh, in 1943 as the first person who ever charged money in a club to hear somebody play records. And, you know, the guy has posthumously become totally infamous for many heinous crimes, but throughout his life, he was celebrated and honored. I mean, the guy was knighted in England and, you know, massive multimillionaire and had an enormous impact on popular culture in England and around the world. And that's one thing I want to point out about this book. It's written by Brits and it's got a pretty UK perspective. So um, the, before they get to Jamaica, they have a whole chapter on Northern Soul, which was this really interesting phenomenon. It's kind of analogous to American disco in that it was the first time that a music scene was dominated by club DJs, like the um, Beatles and Stones era, rock era. There were club DJs, and and their records were broken, you know, uh, to big audiences in London. The first time the Beatles broke to a London audience was a, a club DJ who played for secretaries who went out and danced at lunch on their lunch breaks. And and that was a big part of it, but it didn't replace, replace bands. You know, a band like the Dave Clark five would still, you could still make a good living as a dance band in the sixties in England. But by the early seventies, DJs had superseded that role and they were playing what they call Northern soul, which it's called that partly because it's, was centered in Northern England, but also because the style of soul they preferred was from the Northern part of the USA, Detroit and Chicago soul versus say Memphis and Muscle Shoals soul. But anyway, so that's a fascinating period and we'll talk about that. But then they do a whole chapter on Jamaica, which is kind of like a what the heck moment at first until you read and you realize that Jamaica and England were very close. Jamaica was an English colony, so there was lots of back and forth. You know, uh, Island Records and Chris Blackwell uh, were the you know record label owners that popularized reggae and ska in England, almost as it was developing in Jamaica. But the thing about Jamaica was, it was a sound system culture where people bought big speaker setups and 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 preamps and turntables and would go out and host parties on the street to play records and the, and the producers would produce records for these DJs and so even a genre like reggae which i always thought of as a sub branch of rock and roll i mean it's musically influenced by r&b there's lots of people who trace the whole genesis from louis jordan the father of american r&b through memphis and new orleans musicians that whose records were heard on the radio in jamaica and sold on the and the record stores in Jamaica, that develops into blue beat, which develops into ska, which develops into reggae, which I think of as Bob Marley with a guitar, a bass player, drummer, keyboards, some backup singers, some congas as a band. But what actually happened was they were cooked up in the studio with musicians, but they didn't they weren't touring groups until you know, later when they went to England and, and, and wanted to break over as, as a band. So that organically it's a, originally a producer's music. And, and also hip-hop comes right out of Jamaica. DJ Cool Herc and Africa Bambata, both of Caribbean heritage, or is it Grandmaster Flash? Anyway, two out of the three founding fathers of hip-hop were of Caribbean heritage, and DJ Cool Herc basically exported the whole Jamaican sound system concept 
to parties in the Bronx. He added the break, the focus on breakbeats was a unique thing, but the whole idea of somebody toasting over records totally developed in Jamaica. So that's, that's why we started in Jamaica. Any thoughts on the Jamaican angle of this, Ryan? Yeah, it's basically, uh, you can't, uh, really talk about a lot of the underground dance stuff without going back and explaining how the sound system phenomena basically started and, and was happening. And there's a, uh, there's a certain interesting element, not just from all of the underground crews in, in the UK and in, in New York and in other cities, uh, basically buying their own gear and running around and being promoters of this music and having their friends writing music for these sound systems and for these parties and it becoming, uh, and it, and it becoming a thing. It's, it's to me, it, it's, one of the first examples of kind of uh, a direct a direct push of music out as opposed to uh, maybe maybe something a, a little bit more controlled uh, because uh, the bi- the big difference to me as far as how everything in uh, in in the underground kind of changed was was that th- these were artists and labels that were directly giving their music to the people without taking the middleman out of it and that was to me the most important part of 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 why this whole thing happened because with without without the sound systems uh the music would never have been heard it wouldn't have been on the radio it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been anywhere i lived in a in a backwards uh part of canada where you couldn't hear anything outside of the top 40 and uh it was really interesting to me kind of going back and uh, checking out on YouTube, and you can find all this stuff, uh, recordings of these sets from these sound system parties or from a couple of these small uh, either underground radio stations or just straight up pirate radio stations pushing this music. And uh, you got to imagine uh, being like in the 80s and hearing this stuff on the radio for the first time. This is the first time that you're being allowed to hear this stuff because it's not having to go through a record exec. And uh, that, that's kind of the, the energy that I feel like the early parts of, of this book kind of capture. It's the radio DJ as somebody who's not just playing what he's being given by corporations, but actually uh, taking music from the people to the people. And it was the same in reggae. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there would, cut the record in the studio and very often the same producer would be the sound system owner and and they just play it to people who are coming out to parties that are being charged for so there was no record label middleman in there and eventually record labels started distributing these records they were making but but that was an afterthought and that's something we'll see when we talk about the uk rave scene and acid house that's so weird though because it's it seems very very grassroots but i knew about bob marley when i was a little kid i mean his his well sure but that's after that's because island records pushed it yeah right 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 but that's what i'm saying it was a very grassroots movement up until like Bob Marley because he became the first one, but it was super grassroots movement all the way up until then. And like Ica mouse and people like that. Yeah. And, and, and Bob Marley was initially rejected mm. both by white rock audiences and black RB audiences in America. You know, there's a lot of cultural tension between, you know, American descendants of slaves and, and Western uh, uh, Indians who come in, uh, or people who come in from the West Indies, you know, frequently of African descent, but there's a lot of cultural distinctions that matter a lot to those people. And so Bob Marley was seen as this interloper and eventually they did break through and he became one of the biggest global superstars of all time. But yeah, it was a very deceptive 
introduction to most right. people. It's just seeing Bob Marley is like a rock product with and a not, big album. And not anything before that. That's what I was saying. Yeah. It was so grassroots that when Bob Marley busted out, nobody knew where he came from, really. Not in the States. In England, there was much more right, of a history, right. you know, um, and even like there had been a couple of fluke hits in, in the U.S. before Bob Marley, Desmond Decker and and uh, uh, Lollipop had, had broken through and Desmond Decker with Israelites and stuff. But, yeah, Bob Marley was kind of sui generis. And it really took DJ Cool Herc taking that format, changing the music, you know, Built in, building the music around American funk drum banks for it to really get a hold in the American underground, which then took, you know, hip hop, as we've talked about in other segments of this series, you know, takes almost a decade to get onto records. Um, but the disco thing is bubbling under and and we'll talk about that a lot. There's two chapters on 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 early disco. And one of the interesting things to me is that some of the first proto disco DJs and by that I mean people who are playing records in a club and changing the records like Mancuso yeah David Mancuso is a big one but even before him there was a period where the hippest DJs on earth in New York City were playing Iron Butterfly and Led Zeppelin I would kill to hear a recording of sets like that where they're taking you know something like Inagata De Vida and having it on two turntables and making it even longer than it already is or um, you know, a whole lot of love and just blasting that uh, guitar riff and looping it by playing two turntables. And, and Grandmaster Flash hadn't come around yet, so they weren't doing it that way, but they could fade records back and forth and they could extend dance breaks. But I want to talk a little bit more about um, some of the big statements they make about the nature of the DJ. Uh, but first, let's hear our next song. And this is Donna Summer's I Feel Love, produced by Giorgio Moroder. I Feel Love, produced by Giorgio Moroder. And that's a class. We've kind of skipped over, you know, the the, the Philadelphia, the Miami disco, um, people like Gamble and Huff and, and, and everything, to go into Europop, which Donna Summer, obviously African-American, but Giorgio Moroder, classic example of a European, white European artist who had a massive, massive influence on African-American forms. This this was one of the first totally electronic dance records. It was very influenced by Kraftwerk, who go on to be a huge influence on Detroit techno especially. Um, so again, you know, that's another difference between this and rock and roll. Well, rock and roll was very much derived from white people who'd been listening to black R&B. R&B obviously had been influenced by white forms of pop song, et cetera, but, but it had this long life as a purely black form in the underground. And white people like Elvis and Eddie Cochran and others listened to it and, and tried to play it and made something new through their efforts. Whereas EDM from its very beginnings was a blend of European and African-American um, Silas going in together. But 
before we talk about that though i want to get into what they say about djs and and the and the the claim they make that the dj is the shaman and it goes all the way back to you know the african belt when we're primates who spend all day hunting gathering living in terror of larger animals but at night gather around the fire under the stars and dance to music and and the shaman would summon you know these spirits and and maybe pass out you know, herbs and, and drugs and rain piss. Yeah. <laughs> <Ranger piss. laughs> exactly. And, and so, you know, this, this dance in the dark is this primal human right. And they argue that the disc jockey is the latest incarnation of the ancient role, but it's not just shamans. I mean, it's the, uh, master ceremonies at the British Music Hall. It's the Jazz Age big band leader. I mean, when you see a picture of a big swing band and there's 15 or 20 musicians, and then there's like, you know, this fat guy with a baton up at the front dancing around, and you're like, what is that guy's role? And and then through this book, it helped me understand those kind of band leaders. Those guys are watching the crowd and making sure people are dancing. They're watching, you know, when a band changes tempo or changes song, the crowd clears out, comes back. What songs are what? What songs are packing the floor? What songs are killing the buzz? You know, and so you needed that band leader who was connected to the audience and is the intermediary. And that's exactly what the DJ is. And you know, and you know that that goes to the square dance caller. Even the classical conductor uh, has that role in a certain way. So this is very much a primal thing that's always been present in music. You always have this intermediary. And then they also emphasize the importance of dance. And this was another thing that European musical tradition denigrated. And part of that is because the Christian church banned dancing essentially for a thousand years of European history, which is not something that you ever had to worry about in Africa or most cultures in the Middle East or Asia. You know, you didn't have a blanket ban on dance for a thousand years. So I think white people's, discomfort with dance uh, is something we earned the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That's funny. I, I think also I like the way that they put evangelical as a descriptor for him because that's true. I mean, he's up there and what do you hear him say? The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. Throw your hands in the air. I mean, he's your minister. He's your reverend. And now a word from our sponsors. Yeah, yeah I, I find I find the book is uh, it's a it's a really good kind of uh, summary of the thesis that they push a lot, and and I find that the book is kind of at its cheesiest when the authors are really uh, try, pushing that shaman uh, controlling the dance floor, and we are all one angle. But it's important to remember again, uh, this was first published in 1999. Uh, at the time, there were still legitimate uh, arguments and discussion going on about whether or not to consider the DJ a legitimate uh, artist. And uh, whether or not electronic music was just continuing to was going to continue to be a fad or had anything of, of real value to add to uh, music discussion. This this was kind of where we were at that time where legitimacy was being fought for tooth and nail. Uh, and these guys kind of had to lay it out in that way. And it, it feels a bit dated to me now, obviously. Um, but it. Uh, it really, it, it was an essential part of the groundwork that needed to be done at the time that the book was written because electronic music wasn't taken seriously and uh, DJs weren't taken seriously either. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that they explain that I think had a lot of value for slow people like myself is that there was a massive shift in music history in the disco era when it became more economical 
not just more economical to play records through a sound system versus hiring a band, but it was a better experience. Somebody like David Mancuso in his loft with a killer sound system for the time, and I'd argue that those early 70s analog sound systems might have been the best ever produced by human beings. I don't know that our digital sound systems are really that big of an improvement over a really killer 70s analog tube amp driven speaker system. But somebody like Mancuso could play records endlessly without a break. And no band can do that. I mean, even, you know, a hippie drum circle is gonna lose the beat from time to time or get tired or have shifts whereas these machines can pump out that beat and as DJs started to use drum machines and in Chicago and the house scene you know they could really only play records that had been recorded on drum machines or using drum loops because they had to have that perfect 4-4 time and so it's something that it's easier for me to appreciate when I realize the historical uniqueness of this stuff and that these are part of, of massive trends in human culture that aren't something to be avoided or resisted. They're just something that happens. And it's not like we made a choice. Oh, this music's better than that music. It was like, this is the best music we can make at this time for these purposes. And people in the early seventies in New York wanted to do drugs and dance all night. And yeah. a rock band just wasn't going to do it the same way as a DJ could. That is absolutely and, right. You can't, I can't argue with anything you just said there. Oh, I suppose, uh, you know, com coming into the, the drug discussion, I feel like drugs were always a part of, uh, of all music scenes, uh, un underground raves kind of get a bad, uh, bad rap for, for, for needing drugs uh, to push everything forward. I, I think at this point, you know, you go, uh, the number of people just, uh, listening to electronic music at home on Spotify at two in the afternoon kind of says that the music stands on its own w without the drugs as well. Um, but, uh, you can't argue that, uh, through the seventies, uh, it was, it was a wild, a wild beat, uh, that hadn't been experienced before and uh, the ability to go as long as you wanted uh, certainly led to uh, a different kind of experience than maybe you saw in, uh, in, in, in the rock scene where it was sex, drugs and rock and roll. I feel like the electronic music, it was they were less individual things and they were more a, a, a combination, uh, an, an entire melange of those three together that created the entire experience for for probably the first two decades of it. Also, the yeah. drugs changed dramatically from the 70s into the, the late 80s and the 90s, too. Yeah, and it's I think it's important to emphasize, though, that the beginnings of disco were very much an LSD thing, that it was it was people dropping acid and dancing all night. A lot of people were doing cocaine for sure. And cocaine became more and more popular throughout the seventies until, you know, by studio 54, it's much more of a cocaine yeah. and less of an acid thing. But I think, and we've talked about it on the show, culturally, we misdescribe what happened with drugs in us culture, where we, we treat LSD as if it was some sort of fad that hit in San Francisco in 67. And then everybody was embarrassed by and stopped doing by 68 or 69. Maybe that was true for Bob Dylan and the Beatles, but that was not true for the mass vast majority of people. And actually LSD, you know, penetrates American culture increasingly throughout the seventies and eighties. LSD actually peaks as a recreational drug in the eighties when the Grateful Dead is touring and filling up stadiums. And there's multiple massive dealer operations that are cooking the shit up. And the that. wall so, and the, when the wall came out, that was like a massive LSD trip. 
Oh, sure, sure. You know, and there were different ways to acid wasn't just for dancing. You know, lots of people were dropping acid and staying home and listening to Pink Floyd on their quadraphonic speakers, but and and headphones, but plenty of people dancing were especially in the, those early 60s or late 60s early 70s era, pre-disco era uh were frying their balls off and that comes back big time that's you know kind of what acid house is but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit acid house and then after that you've got uh i got there's another book that we'll probably bring up a number of times because it's 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 decent in its own right it's called generation ecstasy and it it, it really delves into the relationship it's it's less of a, a book about uh djing and more or more or or even really the scene but more of the drug movement inside the scene and uh you know you can't really separate rave from ecstasy back in the 90s i feel like uh uh, it would almost be a part of missing the point if you were looking at these underground raves and, and not uh, not discuss the role that ecstasy had in, in opening people up and making them more empathetic, uh, empathetic or uh, just more more sensitive to each other and, and how that uh, that really created a, a very interesting movement. Absolutely. And, and that book's also called Energy Flash. And I think the revised edition is by Simon Reynolds, who's been on the show to talk about a different book of his. But um, that book, I would very much love to do this book and then do that book and then do Michelangelo Matos's um, The Underground is Massive and as a kind of trilogy history of EDM, because I think this genre is absolutely massively important to the 21st century. Um but that book, especially in the expanded edition, it's more than it does get back kind of the producers and the DJs and not so much just to focus on the drugs. But, yeah, that's key. And, and let's let's run through the history a little bit more, because disco has this weird thing where it's an underground culture centered in New York, primarily driven by African-Americans and gay people that becomes increasingly popular on pop radio, um, the success of, of Gamble and Huff and the, and the Philly sound and the Miami sound and numerous disco radio hits and uh, chart beats, chart hits, you know, popularized around the country. There, there begin to be discos in LA and Miami and Chicago and places like that. But then in the middle, late seventies, it blows up. The Beaches get into it, bring it to a massive middle-class white audience. There's a movie, Saturday Night Fever, that's explicitly about white suburban Italian kids dancing to this stuff. It turns out that was totally fictionalized by Nick Cohn, an English guy who was basing it on his experience of mods and rockers in the 60s and totally fantabulated the whole thing. But it's brilliant art. It's a classic case of you know when the legend becomes fact, print the legend or whatever that shit blew up and everybody's doing disco songs the rolling stones kiss has a disco hit uh there's things like disco duck uh kenny rogers and dolly parton and you know lionel richie goes from being a hard funk guy in the commodores to putting out disco-esque pablum and then there's this massive backlash and i think you know and there's the the infamous disco sucks riot in, in chicago ironically at a white Sox detroit chicago white Sox detroit tigers game so the two scenes cities they're going to birth the rebirth of dance music are are <laughs> the people that tore it down and so they have this ugly riot where you know there's a white rock dj who's pissed because he has to play disco or he's been fired by his radio station because they want to play disco and, instead of rock and there was this backlash and, and currently it's seen as primarily homophobic and primarily racist. And those are absolutely 
absolutely big factors in there. But as somebody who lived through that era, even though it was only 10, in a lot of ways, disco did suck by 1979. I mean, this was not the cutting edge stuff. This was just crap that your grandma was dancing to. And and you could not get away from the shit. So, yeah, the um, commodification of, of disco and the KTEL uh, compilation, yeah, uh, that all, all, all that kind of stuff. It was the first time that I think capitalism kind of uh, tried to take underground dance music and and turn it into something that they could profit off of, and uh, it worked. It worked for for a while when it when it kind of stayed close to the the, the the roots that they were stealing from, but it got pretty soulless pretty quickly. And uh, and like like cheap coke, it just uh, didn't last. <laughs> you know, yeah, the KTEL era was ruinous because they would take a slow song and mix it in with a whole bunch of disco songs. And you're right. It was stuff that your grandma was listening to. I think KTEL ruined everything. Yeah, pretty much. And so there's this big backlash and, and suddenly disco is dead. You know, a band like Chic that's that's kicking out monster hits like good times, you know, and producing for Sister Sledge and, and Queen is rewriting their songs for massive hits, suddenly cannot sell records to save their lives. And, you know, now Rogers has to go and become a producer and operate behind the scenes. The same thing happens for Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees, who goes and and produces a whole new level of, of uh, I'm not going to denigrate it too much because I've come to respect what he did with Barbara Streisand and, and Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton a lot more than I used to when I was younger. And that becomes a whole new genre of post-rock pop. That's where you get your Celine Dion's and your Whitney Houston's and, and all these things, which are, and Beyonce and, and, and beyond, you know, that, it's another totally valid strain of music, but back to our plot, the torch is kind of put out at least publicly. And one of the key DJs um, from New York moves to Chicago, goes back to his home. No, I don't think Frankie Knuckles was a Chicago native, but goes to Chicago and starts playing in underground gay clubs. And let's hear, this is actually a Detroit techno track. This is Rhythm is Rhythm. It is what it is. The Majestic Mix by Derek May, who's one of the Belleville Three, uh, the founding fathers of Detroit techno. So this is Rhythm is Rhythm. Rhythm is Rhythm by Derek May. And so what you have is an underground scene in warehouses uh, in Chicago, and it becomes known as house music, although originally it's basically just disco. You can hear old Frankie Knuckles stuff from the early 80s, and it's really just continuing uh, what was going on in, in New York in the 70s uh, with a lot of Euro disco because that was the records that were being made. Disco didn't die in Europe, and so they were they were bringing stuff over. But he starts experimenting with drum machines. Kids in Chicago start making cheap records at home. There's a totally legendary sleazy record company called Trax Records that starts putting out these things and, and selling them. And meanwhile, in Detroit, there's a parallel scene that's kind of in an upper middle class um, African-American community, kind of what you would call bougie people um, who are – 
start creating these records, early adopters of synthesizers and, and techno, they're very influenced by the synth pop that's coming out of England as well as Kraftwerk and Giorgio Moroder. So it's just a classic case of cultural transmission and and of people passing the torch and keeping these things alive. And and another thing that's got to be mentioned is the AIDS epidemic. So you go from a period when people believed that there was no disease you could get from having sex with random people in massive numbers that you couldn't fix with a shot of penicillin. Um, and people were on the birth control pill. So problem solved. Let's be as promiscuous as you want. And then this virus comes along, HIV that just feasts on that community and it's this horrible tragedy and i i can remember you know i know people mostly i know older people who can tell me about the friends they lost in that in that era but it's this just a plague and and people are dying and so if you're a black gay person in chicago in the 80s loves hot hip music you're dancing out that sexual frustration much more so than you're actually fucking it out. Like on the studio 54 grounds, people are fucking in the club. That's not so much happening in the Chicago house scene because that becomes a death sentence. And, and like you say, ecstasy starts entering the scene. It's a MDMA. It's a variant somewhat related to LSD. It's in the hallucinogenic family, but it's got very different effects and makes people want to hug and group hug and, and share this, this, it's named ecstasy for a reason. I mean, when it's good, it can really spread joy over a whole area. So, you know, that's this fascinating period. And that music starts to get distributed to places like Dallas and Los Angeles and even comes back to New York, which has historically been resistant. And for a long time, Chicago was a house music city and it was house and techno. Like Detroit was so close to Chicago that the two scenes are cross pollinated almost from the beginning. But Chicago resisted hip hop for a long time. And, um, you know, it, it very much was a odd variant of African American, regional variant of African American culture, which is totally a theme of the show. These regional differences are what it's all about. Thoughts on this era? Well, I think uh, one of the one of the big interesting things to me about about this is is this was before all the genres were, were kind of codified and uh, everybody was just kind of doing their own thing and there was a lot of cross-pollination a lot of difference i remember uh, when i first started raving you basically had two rooms and one was the four four straight beat room and the other one was the breakbeat room and that's how everything w was separated across just to, just to keep a smooth flow of the music but uh, there was a lot of people out there you know that were making techno that there would be breakbeats in it. Uh, you'd have ridiculous what you consider high energy stabs and stuff like that. And what's uh, and what was being released at the time is as just being called house music and house music, of course, uh, just like techno music, uh, the number of people out there who will call anything that, you know, anything house music or anything techno music and not really be wrong. Uh, it's, it's high uh, because things were just so open and so flexible at the time. There was no rules. Anything could go. And, and a lot of people put out a lot of different stuff. Like even just look, listening to uh, the original uh, Detroit originators, listening to their Detroit techno. I mean, a lot of that stuff is... Uh, uh, it's not what you would consider uh, Detroit techno circa the late nineties or, or beyond that. Uh, so the, the labels, the labels were very blurry back then and everybody was borrowing from everybody. Everything was in a state of flux and uh, it, it was really the groundwork for the music going a thousand different directions. 
Absolutely. That's a good point. And it's something that happened with jazz in the 1920s. So much of the music that was known as jazz in the jazz age, modern scholars say, oh, no, that's not jazz at all. It's not improvised. It's not played by black musicians. It doesn't meet these qualifications. But if you were a flapper in the 20s dancing in the speakeasy, you knew jazz when you heard it. And a lot of that stuff was considered jazz at the time. And just like I, for one, called all this stuff techno. And <laughs> and and I heard house later, but to me, it just meant music that was made with synthesizers. And that's another key difference is that the Chicago house records and techno records were the first records that they weren't the first records. Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer were the first records, but they built on that tradition of its drum machines, its synthesizers. Chicago House will tend to have some singing. Detroit techno almost entirely instrumental. So this is a, a break where you don't even have the house band like you did with early disco or early hip hop. Um, you know, it's a complete clean break. And it does come after Planet Rock, which was a, of a hit classic hip hop record by Africa Bambata. And and you, also you had things like Hip House, where groups like the Jungle Brothers that are hip hop groups are playing songs with house beats. So And Strafe. All- Strafe was a big one with Set It Off because he started out as a hip hop artist and ended up crossing right over. Yeah, absolutely. So things are very fluid and, and groups in England um, uh, pump up the volume as a classic hit. Mm-hmm. I think the group was called Mars that that's ripping off hip hop and house at the same time and doesn't even really realize that they're quote unquote separate genres. So it's a very fluid, very creative period. And- Acid and house, I think, is probably the most fluid. I mean, I didn't know where one began and one ended. I just was introduced through song like I, I think his name was Maurice and he had a song called this is acid and it it played and that was my first introduction to it and the whole time I listened to it I thought it was house yeah and and retrospectively we've what is it the 303 um it's just a machine that creates these really liquid sounding bass lines and that's that's become retrospectively defined this is what acid house is as you take mm-hmm. house music you add a 303 but there's one little more step in the story we need to talk about, and that's what they call, and I'll probably butcher this, so if y'all know how to pronounce this better, but Balearic music, which basically means music played on Ibiza. Yeah, uh, Balearic. Yeah. Balearic. Yeah. Um, thank you. And uh, I'm an autodidact and a yokel, so my pronunciation tends to be abysmal. It's but- one of those words that you just, if you, if, you're, if you weren't there at the time or something like that, you're just not going to hear it said out loud. So it's, you read it all the time, but you never really hear anybody saying the word. And if they do, they're usually really British, and it just makes it even more confusing. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's just one of these weird things where Ibiza had been a dance and disco center for a long time, and it was Basically, more than anything else, I think it's where influential Brits heard techno and house music for the first time in context. Because if you listen to like radio shows from Chicago in the 80s, and that was another thing, Chicago had radio shows that were playing this stuff. And if you listen to recordings of Frankie Knuckles sets, you know, the key DJ of the era, or um, some of the recordings off the radio at the time, there'll be Stevie Wonder songs thrown in. I mean, there's a lot of old disco thrown in, and it's not just techno record after techno record after house record after house record it's it's a blend of things and it come very much comes alive when you hear those old disco sets and so it's not a music that really lives as a three-minute single it's music that lives as a three-hour dance set or a four-hour radio show and so abitha was kind of the first place that this crew of 
what really we can British DJs hear this stuff and and are dropping the ecstasy and dropping acid and experience what becomes rave culture and they bring it back to London. Somebody gets a hold of a 303, you know, at first when they're doing it in London and Manchester, um, it's they're bringing in records and DJs from America because it's classic Brit. They love African-American music. They very much learn uh, the history of this stuff and they respect these African-Americans who are very much prophets without honor in their homeland and bring them over to England and pay them big money and celebrate them. And it was very heady experience for all those uh, young DJs and producers, but very quickly being clever and musical themselves, the Brits start making their own records and you get stuff like acid house. And let's hear one from DJ Pierre. This is box energy, 1988. DJ Pierre's Box Energy from 1988. Ryan, you picked that one. Tell us about it. Why is it important? Well, DJ Pierre is uh, is is another one of the those um, those Americans that uh, that got imported kind of into the into the UK. Um, he was a a Chicago uh, DJ guy, and and the, and the cool thing about DJ Pierre is he was one of the first guys to to really put the 303 as the meat of the track, you know, as the baseline that was running through the whole thing and, and get it really squelchy. And, uh, it's the, the 303 is one of those instruments that, you know, uh, again, uh, last night, a DJ saved my life spends a lot of time, uh, really concentrating on that because I think, uh, they recognized at the time that not everybody's heard of 303 at this point. The, the sad thing about the 303 is it's almost played out. Um, you have to have somebody doing something really interesting with it, or you have to have the respect of, of listening to something older, uh, and, and enjoying it as, uh, as something retro for the 303 to be, uh, still exciting in, in, in my book. But at the time, uh, there was, there was nothing like it. You, you went from people who, uh, you know, you had synthesizers that were more interested in emulating a real piano sound th- than it was, or 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 maybe like an an enhanced piano sound that it was uh, creating something really creative and 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 out there. And then you had, uh, you know, you had guys like Giorgio Moroder going full robo, and then you had guys like DJ Pierre putting just this really strange squelchy fart queef machine over all of his tracks <laughs> and uh, it's just wild <sighs> yeah and it sums up you know the era and and britain has this cultural explosion in the late 80s built around uh, acid house northern soul had very much laid the groundwork for that brits were very used to congregating in clubs and dancing to djs but adding the updated techno music. I mean, Northern Soul is very much a retro scene. It, it's really fascinating. It's one of these sort of cargo cult scenes where people are obsessed with records from the 60s in America, American records from the 60s, well into the mid 70s, you know, and it just reaches a point where there's no more crates to be sifted through. There's no more tainted loves to unearth. Uh, and, and it kind of plays itself out. There's a whole funk jazz period that, that kind of rides out carries the dance scene torch 
through uh, the punk era and, and the beginnings of the Thatcher era, British synth pop comes in and is very much dance music. Um, you know, some people tell you that New Order or whatever is not dance music. And I'll tell you, bullshit. People dance to that shit in massive numbers. Have they never seen the opening, uh, the opening scene of Blade when they're all dancing to Confusion? That's yeah. a massive scene. That's one of the most memorable scenes in any movie. Absolutely. And the key 303 track. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, That's... look at like Basic Instinct. Latour made it big because of that movie, because of the the dance sequence where uh, Sharon Stone and, and the chick that she's ha- also dabbling with are having this really steamy dance scene while Latour is playing blue in the background. I mean, lots of lots of the, the crossover into mainstream happened around that time. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, and we'll talk about all this stuff in future episodes, you know, exactly what happened in England in the late 80s, or at least as well as we can understand it, not having been there, although I was at least around at the time as we used stuff. Ryan comes along a little later. But next time, we're going to be back and we're going to go way back. We're going to be talking about the early days of the radio DJ and the early days of the club DJ. I think we're going to combine two chapters and see if we can uh, cover that stuff. So we're going to be talking a lot about England, a lot about old-timey music, uh, jazz, big band swing uh and and uh early rhythm and blues so it should be fun ryan and steph it's been a hoot nate wilcox for let it roll thank y'all very much follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it roll cast and check out our website at let it roll podcast.com nate and ryan will be back next week to discuss the first djs both on the radio and in the clubs including legends like alan freed and the infamous jimmy seville let it roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.